Good Friday afternoon, London. Jess Brady here with you on the 980 CFPL Afternoon Show. I hope you're having a good day. I hope that you are excited that it's Friday. And there has been a lot that's been going on in the last even a few hours. Lots of news from the province in terms of opening things up. Today, of course, is the start of Phase 2. As of uh, 12.01 this morning, we were officially into Phase 2, which means that there are now more opportunities for people to go out to a patio at a restaurant or a bar. Uh, and the other big news of the day certainly is this announcement from provincial officials that we can now open up our social circles. And we're going to talk a lot about that coming up later on in the show at around uh, 4.07. We're going to check in with Dr. Mario Elia to kind of get a better understanding, breaking down what these new uh, conditions mean for our ability to socialize with everybody else. So it's it's big news day, obviously, and uh, there's going to be lots to talk about. We're also talking to Lauren Reed a little later about the Tim Hortons app. Yeah, there's some news out saying that that application is actually tracking a little bit more of what we do than perhaps we thought. So Lauren Reed, of course, is the president of the Privacy Pro, and she's going to give us a breakdown of what we need to know on that. Also, I'm not sure if you've heard this story yet. We have it on globalnews.ca. Loblaws and Metro are rolling back the pandemic pay top-up that they were giving to their workers in grocery stores and uh, and other frontline workers within their companies. Yeah, that's ending very soon. So we're going to check in with Moshe Lander, uh, economist and senior lecturer at Concordia, to get his take on that. But what we are starting the show with is something that you don't often hear about. Young people these days are, I feel very old even saying that sentence, they are extremely motivated and they are very aware of the world around us. And we have uh, many of those uh, young people here in London, but we are joined by one on the line right now, Lila Wheeler. She and her mom, Kristen Wheeler, uh, have been leading this charge to raise awareness about a street here in London in the Oak Ridge area that has a name that they would like to see changed. And this is the street that, you know, that they call home. It's Plantation Road. And given all of the discussion that's been happening lately uh, about being more aware of racial inequality, racism, and fighting back against it, this is a very timely moment for Lila's petition on change.org to be coming back to the forefront, which it is. So I'm going to leave it now to Lila to explain a little bit more about this. Lila, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It's great to chat with you. And now, if my math is right, you're about 10 years old, right? Yes, I am. My goodness. Well, I am so excited to chat with you because there are very few 10-year-olds who would be so aware of, first of all, the history of the word plantation. And maybe let's start there because you learned about this and you decided to, to try and make some change here, right? Yes, I did. Tell me about that process. Well... I was looking, well, I was reading at the Who Was books. There are a series of books about history. Mm-hmm. And there was one called The Underground Railroad. There's a chapter called Life on the Plantation. Hmm. Yes, then I'm sure that that would have, you know, made you kind of start a bit because, I mean, you live on Plantation Road. Did, did you, what did you, how did you feel when you first read about that? Um, I was very confused about why our street is named that. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And, and so where did you go from there as you, as you were confused? Did you do some more reading? Yeah, I finished the book and then I sent a letter to the counselor. 
Aha. And I believe that's uh, Steve Lehman. We're going to try and have him on the show on Monday afternoon. We're, we're chatting with him about that. He was unfortunately in meetings today. He couldn't join us. Uh, but what did you learn when you talked to the counselor? Well, he said that he would have to take it up with the counts with the other counselors and the government. Yeah, it's a pretty big process, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes what we think would be a very simple thing to change has a whole lot of red tape around it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so for everybody else who's listening and maybe doesn't know about this story, this discussion and, and all of your work on this started like last year, right? Yeah. So it's been going on for a while now. Yeah, it has. Mm-hmm. And so you reached out to uh, some of your neighbors as well. What was the response like from, from your neighborhood? Well, um, a lady down the street, she said to go find a more age-appropriate thing to do. Well then, little does she know that you are. this is very age-appropriate for you. And so what you've done from here is you you have this fantastic petition that's uh, all ready to go on on change.org. You already have like 2,100 signatures. I'm just looking at it right now, and the ticker's going up as I look at it. Um, Tell me about what it's been like to see, uh, you know, people signing your petition. Well, it feels really good to have people supporting me, just like how there were so many people on the rally at, on, uh, on, Saturday. Yeah, there's a really big community response there. And, and I think that was, you know, uh, really important to see that for, for our community to, to know that there is a lot of support here for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Ah. And so what do you hope to, to do from here, Lila? Where would you like to see things go? Well, I would like to see the name get changed, but um, everybody has to agree on a name. It can't just be like one person decides. Okay, so it is it is pretty complicated. So everybody else on the street has to have a say on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that could be a little bit tricky, I guess, trying to get everyone on board. But maybe now, because of, uh, you know, all the work that you're doing and the discussions that are happening outside of this topic, you know, maybe people will be more aware of it and, uh, you know, take it more seriously now. They should have before, but maybe now they'll they'll be more open to talking about it. Yeah. I'll keep my fingers crossed that they do. And we'll keep talking about this, too. Like I said, we're going to try and uh, chat with Councillor Lehman on uh, Monday. But this is really fantastic to hear all of the hard work that you've been doing on this, Lila. I'm I'm so glad that you're involved in this. Is Mum there? Maybe can I chat with her for a little bit? Sure, if you want to. Yes, please. Just momentarily. (laughs) Okay, here she is. Thank you, Lila. You're welcome. Hello. Hi, Kristen. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And I got to tell you, it's an absolute pleasure speaking with Lila. She's, uh, you know, very articulate and well-spoken for a 10-year-old. And, uh, you know, you would not think that uh, someone of her age would undertake this kind of a mission, but I'm so glad that she has. Yes, uh, she certainly has. And I I do want to be clear that it most definitely comes from her. Um, This is something of, of her doing, something that she saw was not right. It didn't sit right with her. And so she's speaking out about it. Absolutely. And as I said to her, uh, you know, perhaps now with the different discussions that are happening uh, in our in our society right now about how we view uh, racism and how we really do need to take it 
much more seriously than we have in the past. This is a time to make these changes. Perhaps, uh, you know, public opinion on your street, more neighbours will be more interested in, in, in looking at this as a possibility of changing that name. Absolutely, and, and she was definitely hoping so. Um, she was pretty pretty horrified with everything that was happening with George Floyd. And after finding out and seeing the protests, she said to me, I wonder what Martin Luther King Jr. would have thought of this. So it's something that's very present in her mind, and she did want to revisit it now to hope to have more of that public support so people can see about this systemic anti-black racism that, for the most part, a lot of people ignore. It's very true. And, you know, I think it's, uh, I've kind of said this on air before, but that it's, if there's a silver lining of all of this, it is to start making some actual concrete changes. It's, uh, you know, terrible that it took this long to get to this point and, you know, to have to have so many people who have perished uh, to actually gain so much public acknowledgement. But I hope that we can see concrete change come from it. And uh, Lila certainly is is helping with that. She, she most definitely is. And I feel very lucky to be her mom. And, and without a doubt, uh, she is a remarkable kid, and I am just very lucky that uh, I get to be with her. So <laughs> we are really hoping to see some, some real changes and less talk and less reviewing of you know, documents and things like that and, and some real change here in London. Fantastic. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and for uh, having Lila come on and chat with me for a little bit. It's been a pleasure connecting with both of you and learning more about this. Thank you so much for having both of us. We, we really appreciate uh, just having the opportunity. I know Lila definitely appreciates being able to have her voice heard and, and get her message out there. So thank you so much. Not a problem, and I'm sure that we will check back in with you as the story evolves, okay? Great. Sounds great. Thanks again. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Kristen Wheeler and her daughter, Lila Wheeler, who is 10 years old and is uh, leading the charge to rename their street in Oak Ridge. They live on uh, Plantation Road. And uh, Lila has been working on this for uh, more than a year now, trying to get the name changed because of the connotations of plantation and its uh, obvious connection to uh, slavery, and she wants to see a different name that's more respectful put on that street sign. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. We will be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. Cast your mind back to the beginning of this pandemic era that we are living in. There was a move from two big grocery store companies to top up their employees' pay because there are essential workers on the front lines working in our grocery stores, making sure that uh, we can get the supplies that we need. And so it was this pandemic pay top up. It's kind of what I'm calling it. And it was, you know, a few extra dollars an hour during that very stressful time, which still quite honestly persists. But now Loblaw companies and Metro have announced that as of Saturday, so like tomorrow, they're going to phase out that pandemic top up. They say the time is right as things start to reopen in the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, unions that represent workers who were getting that top up say that's premature. And I, I, I would I would tend to agree with them. I feel like we're not really we're seeing numbers coming down, which is great. But 
we're still being told to exercise a high degree of caution. You know, I don't know. It's an interesting move at this time. And I wanted to get some insight into this issue. And joining me now to provide that, and I'm very grateful for it, is Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University and a Londoner uh, who is now obviously working at Concordia in uh, Montreal. But Moshe, thank you so much for your time today. Always great to check in with you. My pleasure. So let me uh, pick your brain about this. When you heard that they were starting to roll back uh, the pay top up, did you think it was a bit early or did you think, no, they're probably on, on track here with the schedule? I'm not a public health expert, so I find that this whole thing is a little bit premature. The, the entire opening up of the economy, I think we're we're going a little too quickly. And, you know, when we've spoken in the past, we I, I was saying that there's a fundamental trade-off between health and economics. And in the first couple of months, we were clearly leaning towards health. I don't know if it's the good weather or the fact that just, you know, maybe people are kind of fed up and going stir-crazy, but it seems that we're releasing the economy uh, rather quickly, risking a uh, second wave, and I think that this is just business is saying, well, if we're going to open up, then the justification for the extra money isn't really there anymore, so we're done. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could see them uh, saying that absolutely. But and and it comes back to that again, as you're saying, that trade off between health and uh, the economy. Just because things are opening up does not mean there's not a risk to their employees' health by being on the front lines of this. That's kind of where my mind goes. Yeah, I, listen, I, I, I kind of find it hard to believe that today on Friday the twelfth, uh, you know, you deserve the extra pay because you're, uh, you know, on the front line of danger and uh, flip the clock 12 hours, and they say, nope, danger's done. <laughs> it's very arbitrary. It's kind of one of those same sorts of things that, you know, um, a driver's license at 16, that, you know, 12 hours before your 16th birthday, you're a menace to society and incapable of handling a <laughs> motorized vehicle, but flip the calendar, and now here's the keys. Um, it, it's the same sort of thing that's going on here, that if you're going to do this sort of thing, phase it out as the economy phases back into open then. So kind of match the risk with the reward, not this, all right, now everything's clear and you're done. It's it's another one of those cases where workers are going to be demoralized and it's going to make it all the harder if there is a second wave, how you kind of rebalance things back. Are we going to bring the pay back then in three months or six months? Yeah, exactly. It just it, and it also seems like not a very great PR move on the parts of the companies. Like I understand that everyone has a bottom line to you know keep in mind, but these companies make millions of dollars, and if you're telling me that they can't afford a few extra dollars for the people who are out there making the money for them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have shareholders here that are going to take a very different approach, and they're going to say, you know, we're, we're concerned with the bottom line, and that is our overriding goal as we invest in your company. But, uh, you know, the the bottom line is over a period of years and years, and so while that might rebalance things now, um, what is the PR disaster that comes with it that could maybe have consequences a few years out? You know, if enough people become outraged at the idea that these poor workers that have been on the front line bagging our groceries for the last three months are now having their pay go back to pre-crisis, pre-ever hearing of this thing, um, are you going to start taking your custom elsewhere? And are you going to start going to other different grocery stores? That could have an impact on the bottom line. And so, you know, maybe they do need to kind of consider that this isn't just a bottom line today issue. It's a bottom line 10 years from now issue. 
Absolutely. Yeah, because it, there have been a lot of discussions about, uh, you know, minimum wage positions and, and how those positions should not like the minimum wage should just be higher, you know, I mean, and of course, people have very different, uh, you know, uh, thoughts on that. But I think that generally, the public has uh, kind of turned the page on how we view these essential workers in positions like this, because uh, these are critical jobs. And, you know, to keep our infrastructure moving in times of crisis, like we've just seen over the last three Three months, uh, they deserve a lot more respect, and and I feel like this clawback is you know lacking that respect, and and I think you quite rightly pointed out the morale issue as well. People will not feel good about going into their jobs with this going on. No, and and you know I I think that this is this is just the beginning of uh, uh, months and months of what we're going to see as the way the businesses try to rebalance their bottom line. So. You know, we've already started to see from a different angle where companies are now starting to introduce almost uh, localized taxes, not through the government, but through their own business as like a surcharge because of all of the various equipment that they have to bring in or the social distancing that they have to employ or the various safety precautions that they have to restart their business. And so that's being shifted onto the customer as a way to try and get them back to profitability again. So, you know, I could very easily see that Loblaws is going to come back and say, all right, you know what, if you guys are that upset that you're not getting this uh, danger pay, and if you, the customers, are that upset about it, that's fine. We're going to start adding 50 cents to every head of lettuce that everybody buys, and we're going to call that, you know, COVID tax. Uh, and that can go to the workers. So if you really are that upset about it, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, and we're going to really see uh, not just the morale uh, of workers, but the morality of the consumers that want to pay for that. It's going to be very interesting to see what changes come down and and how these discussions evolve over time as we move through this uh, new opening up phase, which uh, obviously, as as you said off the off the bat here, uh, there are some concerns with that, given how fast we're moving. But as always, Moshe, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. Anytime. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. That's Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal and a Londoner, native native to London, grew up here, went to school here and everything. We need to take a break for our 3.30 news. We are running behind, as per usual, my fault. We will be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. Let me ask you, on your cell phone or whatever smart device you have, do you have an app for Tim Hortons? I do. I have it on my cell phone. It's very handy. In the pre-Rona days, uh, when we all were still in the newsroom, we could order the coffee and then run downstairs to our Tim Hortons and pick it up really quickly and come back up. It was great if you needed to squeeze in a visit before a, a news break or whatever. But there is word now that this app has actually been tracking a lot more of our data than perhaps we realized. Uh, maybe your home address. Yeah. Just your, maybe even your vacation plans. 
How's that possible? Hmm. Well, there's an article by the uh, in the Financial Post, rather, in their business section, and it's talking all about the data points that have been collected for a couple of years now since the app was launched. And one thing for sure is that you you pick like the location that is closest to you through the app and you can choose uh, which location you want to order from. But it's very interesting. And who would have thought that this innocuous little app would cause such an uproar? And it's funny because I got an email from Tim Hortons just the other day being like, here's what we collect for our data and your of your data, laying out their policy and everything. And I thought, well, what's this about? Why are they sending this to me? Well, this is what it's all about. This recognition now that there's more data of ours that's being shared than we necessarily thought. Now, someone who has a lot of experience with privacy issues online and apps and things of that nature is Lauren Reed. She is the president of the Privacy Pro. She joins me on the line right now. Lauren, first of all, thanks for your time. Nice to chat with you again. And uh, do you have the Tim Hortons app? (laughs) Uh, I don't. I have the Starbucks app. I have the Shoppers Optimum Points app. Same. Yep, I have, <laughs> I have that a one. A lot of them. I have Aeroplan. Uh, I have Weather app. I have TripAdvisor. I I I um I do this as my career. Mm-hmm. I try and seek to understand how location data is being used by companies and helping companies to do that in a way that's legal and ethically uh, and ethically sound practices. Um, and I still download the apps. I still know exactly what I'm doing, and I download them anyway. Um, so it's a surprise to a lot of folks. It wasn't a surprise to me. Um, so I'd love to share. Uh, I'd love to talk with you about it in case yeah. your listeners are surprised as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you the bad news first, and then I'll give you some good news. Perfect. I always love doing <laughs> what that. You can do about it. Bad news first, good news second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the bad news is, it's probably even worse than you think. No! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So um, the author of the article, James McLeod in the Financial Post, uh, he he looked at all of these details of how these pings, these location data points that the app was collecting, um, were able to assume uh, where his home was and where his work was and you know, he had gone on a vacation and they figured out that he was at the airport and that it was constantly tracking all of this information. And you might think that it's looking at, you know, the same, you, you picture when you use a, a, a map, like a Google Maps app, mm-hmm. and you think, oh, it's that little blue dot that travels with me when I walk. And you think that's how precise their location is. Unfortunately, that is not the case. They can tell... Uh, what floor you're on in a building based on the accelerometer of your phone. They can tell if you're walking around an office. They can tell when you're in a mall, which stores you're in uh, and which kind of route you're taking through the mall. Um, So bad news, number one, it's really, really precise and it's way more than you realize that's being collected. Oh, that's very disheartening. <laughs> I know, I know, and it gets worse, it gets worse. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, the location gets really, really precise, and depending on the apps, and um, I, I think that he found this in the Tim Hortons app as well, they also collect information about how you're using your phone. Some uh, investigations have shown that 
an app that you agreed to um, that involves typing something in. You know, if you're typing in your address or you're, you have to paste in a comment and you want to use the copy and paste features on your phone, that the app can look at what's on your, on your clipboard, <gasps> even if you didn't type it into that app. So if you were texting someone, if you texted me some juicy gossip <laughs> and you saved that on your clipboard, uh, that some apps would be able to actually look at it. Oh, my. Well, that's, that's quite something. I was not expecting to uh, hear that, Lauren. That's very disturbing. I know. I know. It gets worse. Uh, what? No. <laughs> it gets worse. It's not just the Tim Hortons app and the Starbucks app and the weather app. There's this entire industry that is just below the surface of all these cool technology and convenient and time-saving things that we eagerly download onto our phones. Our credit card companies are in on it, too. Facebook, Twitter, all the social media, they're in on it, too. And so we're not just, that data is not just being collected by Tim Hortons. It's this entire network of people that, of, of companies that are profiting off of this type of information, and they're all collecting it and putting it together to create these profiles about us. Um, and it, they're called data brokers. And the industry is thriving in the United States, less so here in Canada, but most of us are downloading apps that are out of the U.S. They're, they're built and subject to U.S. laws. Huh. Well, then. Well, this is eye-opening, and I don't think I like what I'm seeing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's better to, to know it and then try to be able to do something about it or protect yourself as much as possible, which I hope is the next part of this chat. I hope we're into the good stuff or the, the good news. Yeah. Well, I, uh, let me get to the good news and I'm because I'm going to give everyone some homework to do, and I want them to know how important it is to follow up on this. Because this might seem kind of annoying and kind of creepy that Tim Hortons knows when you're going on vacation and you think, well, you know, I also posted my vacation to all my friends. What, what's the big deal if Tim Hortons uh, knows this information about me? But it actually can be very harmful. Um, one thing that you could decide whether you feel like this is harmful or not, and I think the article talked about this with dynamic pricing. So if they know that you're traveling to tropical locations all the time, and I said the credit cards are in on this too. They tell you what purchases are being made. Um, they're, you know, the car dealership might have said that you bought an expensive car, and they could figure that, oh, well, Jess is probably more willing to pay more for our product than hmm. Lauren is. So her price is going to be displayed higher. And that's not fair. It doesn't feel fair. It's not illegal. They do the same thing if uh, you are shopping in downtown Toronto versus rural Ontario. Um, the price might be different um, based on the market. Hmm. Also kind of frustrating. But right now, it's really timely to be thinking about um, the human rights and safety issues of this data being collected. So if you can track where someone is uh, down to the precise floor of a building that they're on, and that data is available on the open market with no protections for you, um, your safety can be at risk, You're, especially as we see all of these demonstrations happening uh, in the United States and here in Canada. And you see this, you know, it's kind of revealing what law enforcement is doing to prevent that from happening and to, and to harm the people who are demonstrating. And the, there's safety risks. 
of being able to pinpoint somebody's location and who they are associating with. There was a case in the U.S. where they were selling this information to bounty hunters. Oh, my God. Uh, because, yeah, it's, it's not that hard to get, uh, and it's not that expensive to buy. So uh, I've, I've just piled on the really <laughs> bad news here. <laughs> Well, is is Sorry. that no no but I mean hey this, this is, is really serious it is it's yeah. more than just roll up the rim is spying on you it's actually really a serious issue so people should um, people should be talking about it and people should be taking action on this. Absolutely. And just quickly, because I I don't want to uh, uh, delay us from getting to uh, the good news here. But uh, is that why I've seen in like in different social media posts where it's advice for people if they are going to a demonstration, they say, you know, bring your mask, bring your gloves, put your phone on airplane mode. Is that why? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh And and that's even um, that's a tricky one, because for safety, sometimes you want to have your phone so that you can contact people. But that data can be tracked on you. Um, it's, I mean, this is how, I mean, Facebook is profiting off of fake news and disinformation. They're manipulating people and they're targeting people with this fake news based on what side of the issues that they're on. Mm-hmm. And so it is, the safety advice to people who are demonstrating is to turn off the location of their phone and Sometimes that doesn't actually solve the problem. So to turn off your phone or better yet, bring a burner phone that doesn't have data on it. So uh, it's sometimes called a dumb phone. Hmm. That's funny. Well, yeah, I've I've uh, <laughs> we've joked about phones being a, a dumb phone <laughs> before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. no, but it's that that would be uh, probably the safest way to go about it. Wow, this is this is blowing my mind, Lauren. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, we're we're a little low on 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 time here, but I do want to get uh, to that the good things that we can do. How can we how can we kind of try to protect ourselves here? Sure. So be aware of what's happening, and you'll see in the article that those privacy notices are very vague. They say, oh, we collect this this location to show you stores you might like and also marketing, like just vaguely. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to get a lot of details unless you talk to the apps and you have a right to do that. So first, check your phone for any apps where you feel like it makes sense that that, that app would want my location. The Weather Channel is one of the worst collectors of location data and sellers of that they're they profit tons off of selling data because they give an app and you think, oh, I'd like to know what the weather is in London. And so I would like to give them my location. So check your apps. Check your settings on Facebook. You can actually see an inventory of all the data that anyone has given to Facebook. That's what you can do um, in your accounts and on your phone. But what people need to know is that as Canadians, we do have privacy rights. And so the way that the, that James McLeod got his information to write this article is he submitted a subject access request. We have the right as Canadians to ask a company like a Tim Hortons to provide us with all of the information that they hold on us, and they have to do that within 30 days. And that's any private company, uh, any company. Uh, we also have those rights in the government and healthcare sectors. So. Submit these access requests. You can go on the website of the company, click on the privacy notice, and find out the address. And they have to send that back to you within 30 days after they verify your identity. And then if they don't send it back to you or if you get it back and you feel like what they're doing is unfair, 
you can submit a complaint to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. And they oversee this um, federally. Here in Ontario, we don't have a provincial law for the private sector. So we would go to the federal Office of the Privacy Commissioner. And they are they are very responsive to what they are hearing. And they have been doing some investigation and looking into this type of location data. But the more information they have... Um, and the more specific details and the more people are saying that I'm upset about this, uh, the better they can react to it. So check your phone, check your accounts, see what's actually happening by getting that information and then communicate that if you feel like it's unfair. Perfect. I love that. Just and, you know, be aware and know your rights. And Lauren, this has been uh, a real eye opener. And you've also, you know, imparted a lot of wisdom to people about how they can go about uh, trying to protect themselves as much as possible. This has been uh, a great chat. Thank you so much for all your time today. My pleasure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Take get, get rid of those apps. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Tess. That's Lauren Reed, president of The Privacy Pro, giving us some very interesting insight into this whole Tim Hortons app story. Yikes, not liking the sound of that. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. We'll be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We know that COVID-19 has posed some very serious challenges in, well, right across the country, obviously, but here at home in London as well. And especially for vulnerable populations, those experiencing homelessness. We've had, uh, you know, agencies that work with individuals going through that that process. Uh, they've had to change their operations a little bit to make sure that, that the facilities are safe and there's proper physical distancing. It's not an easy time. Now, there are some... I guess, encampments, if you will, of those experiencing homelessness. They are, you know, kind of camping out in at least one city park in in Queen's Park. And the city is allowing that to continue. And it's it's for really good reason. And joining me on the line right now to explain a little bit more about what's happening is Craig Cooper, manager of homeless prevention for the City of London. Craig, thank you for your time today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you. And I know that uh, this is obviously an issue that uh, Londoners take seriously. We want to try and provide as much support for people as possible and maybe explain a little bit about what's going on right now. Yeah, you know, with with the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, Jess, it, it's it's put a um, a challenge in, into our system, you know, an already challenged system. And uh, City of London and our partners are working, you know, tirelessly uh, during the pandemic to to support individuals and families that are living unsheltered in London. Um, we want to make sure that they have access to supports and programs, and um, you know, maintaining physical distance requirements while while um, they're struggling. And so we've put some individuals that were higher risk uh, that were utilizing shelters and hotel rooms to create more space in our shelters to just can make sure that they continue uh, operating. And so um, we've seen uh, that system can be continued uh, to operate at capacity. Um, you know, we do have some opportunities for people to get into shelter, but it is, it is, it is busy. And so we've always had a, an unsheltered population here in the city. I would say the numbers from compared to last year and this year are, are fairly similar. We've seen a, a very slight uptick, I would say, with the COVID-19, but the encampments themselves, I would say, are fairly similar to what we've seen uh, in years past. It's just that they're more congregating together now. 
And, you know, it's 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 one of those things where, uh, you know, people who are, are experiencing this going through this, they they make homes of, of those of those spaces and they have community. They have their friends around them and they can offer support to each other. And it's I'm, I'm glad that that they are able to have that sense of community there and, uh, you know, have have the, some of that that protection within their within their groups. Yeah, it just you know it, it's it's a bit challenging, right? I just I, I do need to be clear that um, you know we're not we're not suggesting people bring their tents uh, and stay in parks. That, that's not what we're looking to do. Our goal is to always find shelter for folks. We have a shelter system, we have a resting space system, and and there are opportunities for people, even though they're busy, um, for people to stay there. And so um, we do focus on housing stability, and we do focus on long term housing stability for folks. And so although um, you know some people are, are currently staying at Queens Park and in some other places within encampments, we do focus on housing those folks and getting those folks housing. So we always want to make sure that they're um, working with our agencies, working with the city to to find and, and achieve permanent housing. Certainly, yes. And I, I didn't mean to uh, Im- imply otherwise, um, but I'm, I'm glad that you absolutely made that clear, Craig. Um, and, and then if, if people are wondering why then, uh, you know, this these camps aren't, aren't being kind of broken up or dispersed, the reasoning then from the city is, you know, maybe explain that a little bit as to why this will continue on for the foreseeable. Yeah, so it was initially a response to, to the, the pandemic, right? So when we saw all the um, agencies and support agencies during the day having to close, uh, your regular meal programs, your libraries, your, your day programming areas, we recognized that people had nowhere else to go. And so as a compassionate response, the city had uh, allowed some of the, the encampments to remain on city property where they were, um, you know, managing physical distancing. And so we're, the tents are 12 feet apart, um, that they're not, um, you know, in, in personally engaging within close to six feet of each other, that um, there's no health and safety challenges, right? They're, they're keeping the spaces maintained, that there's not, uh, you know, needles being left all over the place and that they're not caused and there's not challenges for the health and safety of the community. And so um, the city at, at that point has, you know, with that compassionate response, wanted wanted to, to, to be able to understand that, that people don't have anywhere to go at that point. So it won't continue on, I would say, for the duration of the pandemic. You know, we are working to house folks and um, we are working to get, to get them uh, out of the encampments, to be honest with you. We don't think that, um, you know, that's a permanent housing solution. It is, is a temporary shelter, which we respect. But at the same time, too, uh, the goal is to get people housed. Certainly. Well, Craig, thank you so much for your time today to uh, you c- explain what's going on right now in the situation and the, and where the city stands on things. It's uh, great to be able to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Jess. Have a great day. You as well. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Craig Cooper, Manager of Homeless Prevention for the City of London, discussing uh, that there are some encampments of individuals who are experiencing homelessness in uh, on some city property, one in Queen's Park. Uh, and the city is, you know, al- allowing those individuals to remain there because obviously this is... A, a time where the system in t- is is stressed, right? There's a lot going on. The priority is to try and get people into shelter, into into spaces that are indoor and indoors and safe. Uh, but right now, this is is kind of the situation. And as Craig Cooper was saying, uh, you know, for compassionate reasons, uh, so long as those those tents are the right space apart and individuals are, are trying to abide by uh, physical distancing as much as possible, they'll uh, you know allow those, those spaces to remain for the time being. We need to take a break for our four o'clock news with Andrew Graham. He's going to get you all up to date with the latest information from the province related to social circles. And when we come back from the news, we are going to talk about that very thing with Dr. Mario Elia. That's coming up on 980 CFPL.
Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. We are with you right up until 6 o'clock this evening, so about two hours left or so. So I told you that we were going to be talking about uh, probably the biggest story of the day here in Ontario, the social circles. It almost feels like it should be that movie about Facebook. Was it the social network? That was what it was called. This is what it's giving me vibes of. Uh, but you've been hearing Andrew Graham give us the latest on this in our top and bottom of the hour newscast all afternoon. Uh, but essentially what we will be allowed to do here is that uh, households in the province are allowed to create social circles of up to 10 people without having to practice physical distancing. So Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. David Williams says if a household has less than 10 people, they can add to their circle, but a person can only be part of one group. Premier Doug Ford says the change means people can finally hug a grandparent or share a meal with their parents or closest friends. The new advice comes as phase two of a COVID-19 reopening plan was implemented across much of the province today, allowing restaurant patios, hair salons and swimming pools to open. So there you have it. Social circles. But what is it? Are, are you are you nervous about this? Are you a little skeptical about how it'll work. There's a detailed rundown as, as to how to form your social circle. We have that on 980cfpl.ca if you're interested. They've laid it out as a, a five-step system. And joining me on the line now to give us his thoughts on this is London physician Dr. Mario Elia. Dr. Elia, first of all, thanks for coming back on the program so soon after your last visit. Thanks a lot, Jess. Long time no see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, we're able to call on you in times like this where there's breaking news uh, to talk about this uh, change in, in what the, uh, I guess, you know, the guidelines are. Were you surprised that things opened up quite this much today? I, I'm not too surprised. I, I think it was, a re- it was a response to a lot of criticism that they were getting that the 10-person like the, the policy they put forward as part of Phase 2 people didn't really know how to interpret it. And you had some, like, as we talked about yesterday, we had physicians and, and medical professionals openly saying on Twitter, we have no idea what this even means. So I, I think it wasn't surprising that the government came out today with some clarity, with some examples of kind of what what they mean by the policy and some specifics in, in, in terms of how to, for people to actually, um, to uh, people to actually put this forward and, in, and put it in, in, into their uh, day-to-day lives. So I'm, I'm glad to see that and i'm glad they clarified what the 10 people means right so it's not a a a 10 person you know a series of 10 person gatherings it's essentially a group of 10 people uh who can share physical contact and that um and that when people are part of a group uh they're not part of other groups that are that are um um avoiding the physical distancing so now the graphic i would argue is a little bit confusing because it has one person at the center of it with spokes coming out um i think it would be the way it could probably better describe is a series of lines connecting every single person within that because you have to assume that if you're connected to any one person in that group of 10 that you're essentially sharing risk with the other 10 in that group. So, um, yeah, I think it's a little more clear for, for people to kind of start crafting. And, and I would say, too, that 10, you know, if you're part of a family and, and 10 will exclude one person from from your group of 10, I think it's probably reasonable to expand that to, to, to not uh, 
um, have a black sheep in the family who is seen as the 11th and is part of no group. So we need to be reasonable, right? And as, as the Premier said, there's, there's you know, police going out and enforcing these circles. I know my family, uh, we're at nine, if we count everybody, and, and we're not going to just find a random to be our 10th. And everyone <laughs> kind of agreed, agreed to kind of keep it to the nine. Um, but it does give a little more... Um, clarity for people in, in how to interpret that. So, yeah, to group, groups of, of, of nine. I think that one thing, though, the Minister of Health did muddy things a little bit when she talked about gatherings being separate from this, and people could still have gatherings of ten. What I would say is, you know, if, you know, outside of your group of ten, any interaction that you have with people, whether it be at, at, at a gathering, whether it be at a restaurant or anything, should be distanced, right? Because you're assuming that, that the only people that you're coming into that six-foot bubble with um without uh, without that distancing is your group of 10. Now, so the, the one caveat that I would say to this is that if, if you're part of a job where you you aren't physically distancing at work or it's impossible for you to d- distance at work, 10 may be too many for for that group, right? So you you have to you have to look at your own circumstances. Is someone within your group of 10 high risk? Um, is someone else in your group not able to physically distance? So, you, you know, again, it's this, it's this new normal. It's this finding this balance for everybody and what this is. But I think the, the, the description from today, I, I think to me is a little more clear and, and, and gives me, again, in circumstances like this, when we're talking, I can give people a little more clarity on how to interpret it. I would agree. I think that it does it does help. I know in, in some of the group chats that I'm in, there were discussions about, uh, you know, the 10 people and then their interactions and, and kind of thinking of it as like a like a pyramid chart as people kind yeah. of uh, move out from those 10 initial individuals. And, uh, you know, it, it might thinking of those interactions that they might have where they are aiming to be physically distant. Uh, it, it can be a little strange to try and visualize it. But I, I in principle, agree with at least today they've been pretty clear about what it means uh, with these social circles. So that is a good thing to have that kind of clarity, because as we said, there has been a lot of confusion over who you're allowed to see under what kind of circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And there's an accountability within that group of group of 10 or, or whatever number that is, too, right, where you're accountable to everyone in your group in terms of how you behave and, and how careful you are outside that group. So, yeah, yeah I, I, again, I, I think it's a good principle. Um, and again, just, just keeping those so important. So avoiding those those three C's as much as we can. So avoiding crowds, uh, avoiding closed spaces, and avoiding close contacts outside of our group group of 10. All that stuff is still super important. The hand hygiene, the getting tested if you have symptoms, the things that we're just re- repeating ad, ad nauseum now for three months. And then the, 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 the last thing, the mask. So, uh, uh, the, the ACT acronym, uh, as, I've, as I've said. So all indoor places. If you're in crowds where you can't physically distance or with transit, so ACT being the acronym for that. So people kind of try to visualize that. But again, I think it's going to be a bit of an adjustment for everybody with these new guidelines, and and um, and it's 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 a work in progress for all of us, right? For and, uh, for for getting used to kind of what the new normal is. What can we do? What what can't we do? Uh, I, I I I will admit uh, I I went for uh, for a haircut this morning, um, and, and and even for for the the barbers, I you know the last person they probably wanted to see their first day at the job was their was a doctor because <laughs> I was pointing out all of the things that they could improve on in terms of mask wearing and distancing and washing their hands and and you know letting the the, the clients be the one to uh, to adjust their mask rather than them and, and making sure they wash their hands after they touch their mask. 
Um, so those kind of things, again, it's a, it's, it's a learning curve for everybody. Um, we should, I think, feel empowered that if you're out and you're seeing uh, someone at a place of business who you think, you know, if there's maybe a little bit of an adjustment they can make, knowing, you know, knowing what you guys know about, about you know, proper mask use and proper hygiene and things like that, don't be afraid to kind of gently, um, you know, not criticize somebody, but say, you know, I, I noticed this. I know, you know, there's a lot going on. Maybe you would consider doing this. Because, you know, not everyone listens to programs, you know, like this where, where we talk about um, uh, proper guidelines. Not everyone's, you know, looking at the same same social media where they're getting this, this hammered through. So I think we all kind of have a responsibility uh, to help everyone through this as, again, so many things are opening up now and so many different scenarios are going to come across and we all need to make sure we're all steering the same direction. Absolutely. I also feel like uh, there's going to be quite a bit of anxiety as this all does start to open up a little bit more. I know I myself am a little worried about how this will shake out and uh, wanting to still make sure that we're protecting everybody as much as possible. But after being told for months and months, oh, stay away from everybody, don't touch anyone else. It's it's a, a strange thing now to start to go back on that and get back to more normal contact. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna take time. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we're still kind of a bit on high alert and still having those 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 lessons drilled into us about about the hand washing and about kind of keeping our our distance from people at the grocery store. Those are things that are I think it's almost a good thing that's still still kind of part of our um, part of our first reactions now because those things are going to be important for a while as COVID continues to kind of percolate at a very very low level through our community for the next number of months. So. So, um, and again, those those reminders are, are, are there and, and we see people with masks, which is going to be a reminder too. So yeah, we'll see what the next few weeks bring. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that with cases on, on the downtrend in Ontario and, and London still being quite low, that, um, you know, th- these loosenings, I think, were inevitable and probably appropriate. But now it's kind of up to us to say, you know, what, what we do with it and, and, um, and how the next few weeks goes. Well, we will be back in touch with you, I am sure of it, as uh, things kind of develop here and as we get the lay of the land. As always, it's a pleasure to chat with you, Dr. Elia, and thank you so much for all of your insight on this and being that calming voice for anyone, cough, cough me, uh, who is feeling a little anxious about it all. But it's it's good news overall, and, and I'm glad we could chat about it. Sounds good. Thanks. Just have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Mario Elia, London family physician, talking about those social circles and expanding them, the news from the province today. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We've had a lot of announcements over the last little while about uh, funding that's meant to help support our economy individuals making sure that, uh, you know, they can they can continue to uh, pay their bills, go to the grocery store, all that good stuff. Um, but there was another big announcement yesterday, and it has to do with supporting local community businesses. And joining me on the line right now to explain a little bit more about it is Kate Young, MP for London West and Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Economic Development and Official Languages. Kate, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Oh, thanks so much, Jess. Always a pleasure. It is great to chat with you, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm excited to learn more about this big investment that was made yesterday for the Digital Main Streets project. Yes, it's uh, it's big because uh, the federal government uh, has uh, announced that we're going to be investing fifty million dollars through FedDev Ontario to support small businesses and especially Main Street businesses. So uh, businesses that have really suffered 
through COVID-19, and uh, a lot of their in-person traffic has, has just stopped. And so what we want is to encourage them to uh, think digital. And that's what this is going to do. It's going to help uh, small businesses, Main Street businesses, uh, uh, just pivot and make sure we hear that word a lot, but pivot and, uh, and become more digital. So it's an exciting program and one that I'm hoping a lot of businesses will take advantage of. Absolutely. And I have to say, first of all, I say pivot all the time now. <laughs> so I, I totally uh, I get what you mean there. It, it is kind of one of the buzzwords of this pandemic. I'll say that. Um, but this is yeah. it's it's great because there has been such a focus on online uh, retail and everything from food to clothing. People who really have you know moved online more so because of what's been going on and not being able to go to the shops as much. Um, so this is great. And, and you know, it, it costs money to have a good digital platform for businesses and it's they'll be able to apply for grants then through this yes uh, actually we're going to there's about four different stages that are available because some businesses are fully online already but they might need support uh, with their supply chain or something like that but for others uh, they may need to just set up a, a basic website and have some web presence and so there's going to be uh, $2,500 to help them build that basic website. Then there's there are some who might want to create an online store. And so this would give them that opportunity at no cost. And, and there are other businesses that just want to expand their market beyond Southern Ontario. So uh, that is, there is that level. So there are a number of different uh, ways that businesses can be helped out because we know that businesses need to look not only to reopening now, but they have to look to the future. And we're all starting to realize that we're going to be doing business differently. And so we want to help businesses uh, make sure that they uh, have that digital footprint. Absolutely. I, I know I, I caught a, a, the tail end of a discussion on Mike Stubbs' show this afternoon, and uh, I believe it was with uh, Lisa McLeod, and she was talking about how they've heard from industries that it will take years for things to get back to quote-unquote normal. And so I think that lends beautifully to your point, Kate, uh, that things are going to change for the long haul in terms of how we do business, and this is a really good uh, step to you know help people navigate that change. Yeah, and, you know, as I'm sitting in my basement office, my doorbell rang, and very seldom does it ring, but I bet it's uh, an online purchase that I made (laughs) not too long ago, because, uh, you know, I wasn't really into the online purchasing, but now I am, and I think we all have to uh, realize that uh, things are changing, and, you know, it has been a crisis, but with every crisis, there's a silver lining, and I think that this is one of them. So we do have to help businesses prepare for the future, and so that's what we're doing, and uh, very excited about uh, making sure that uh, in London, the business improvement areas are involved we have the uh, Chamber of Commerce involved. We have Tech Alliance involved. So there are a lot of different partners here that are going to make this happen. Fantastic. Well, Kate, it's been great to chat with you about this and to learn more about the programming and the grants. Uh, I'm sure that there will be lots of people who will want to take advantage of this. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And I just wanted to say that if you want more information, just go to digitalmainstreet.ca and it's all there. Perfect. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much. Take care.
That's Kate Young, MP for London West and Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Economic Development and Official Languages. We are going to take a break for that 4.30 news package with Andrew Graham. He's going to get you up to date with everything you need to know that's going on today. When we come back, we are going to chat with Eric Alper. He's a music analyst about some news from the country music world. The band, Lady Antebellum, has changed their name. They are now going to be called Lady A, which is uh, a nickname that their fans gave them like a way back, like basically when they first started out. Uh, But we're going to talk to Eric about why the band has changed its name. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. I saw this piece of news yesterday, saw it first on Twitter, I do believe, and it has to do with country music superstars, now, I guess, formerly known as Lady Antebellum. I had never thought too much about their name before, did not know that there was such a history and connotation with the word antebellum. But the band announced yesterday that they are making a big change when it comes to how they are referred to, their name, and they've already already changed their uh, social media handles and everything. Uh, they announced that instead of being called by their original name, they will now be called Lady A, which is a nickname that their fans gave them like ages and ages ago. Pretty much, I think, since they've been around, they have been affectionately known as Lady A. And they issued a statement explaining why they've done this, that they said that they've you know done a lot of uh, essentially soul searching in the last number of weeks as we've seen demonstrations and really important conversations about anti-Black racism and uh, oppression and brutality coming to the forefront. And they have done some more research. And to them, they have realized that the name Antebellum carries a lot of pain for people. And I also did a quick search on uh, the definition of that, and it says occurring or existing before a particular war, especially the American Civil War. And you might hear it in a say in a sentence like the conventions of the antebellum South, so pre-Civil War. And of course, slavery in the South before the Civil War and what the Civil War was predominantly all about. Uh, was was that was that practice horrific practice, and so the band has decided to move forward as Lady A and to drop Antebellum and to not use it anymore because of the pain and suffering that has come about because of that time. I thought it was very interesting that they would make this move. And joining me on the line to give us a little more context and insight into this decision and talk about how the music industry is kind of responding to this movement that we're seeing right now is Eric Alper. He's a music analyst and very well known here. And uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jess. And actually, I'll throw another wrench in this whole story that came out only hours ago, it turned out that there is a black soul and blues artist that goes by the name Lady A that has been putting out albums on Spotify for about 15 years. And she's actually come out against this band name, saying that it fringes on her right to be called Lady A and not causing confusion in the marketplace. So band name aside, this could be a whole other issue for Lady A to now deal with when they thought that they were just doing the right thing. It turns out that sometimes, even when you're doing the right thing, you end up upsetting a couple of people. 
My goodness, that is <laughs> quite the twist. I was not expecting that. I'm so glad you told me. <laughs> yeah, you, you you know, but I, I you know I, I think it's really important. You know what you said is that um, I kind of consider myself in the know. I know that you read a lot as well. For years, I've been saying this name without any connotations. In fact, the name Lady Antebellum comes from the fact that they did a photo shoot really early on in their career um, in antebellum houses. And they thought it would be really cool um, in letting their imagination flow that there might have been a ghost in the house and that ghost would have been a lady. And that's where the name Lady Antebellum comes from. I don't think they even had a thought that it meant, um, you know, as you said, before the war, slavery, and with that comes the connotation of planetation. And um, in fact, even the brightest and the best artists, and I'm thinking about Ani DeFranco, who is a well-known folk singer. She um, does everything correctly throughout her career. Um, she ended up in a, in a little bit of hot water a couple of years ago when she decided to do a uh, listening party at a old, amazing house um, in uh, in Charleston. Um, and it turned out that a lot of fans were very upset because that same house that was used for the listening party was actually owned by slave owners. So we're at a moment now where doing right is the right time right now to do it. And it's just astounding how many things are happening right before our very eyes with name changes like band name. And it might only be a matter of moments until the Cleveland Indians, the Edmonton Eskimos, the Washington Redskins are put pressure to change their name as well. And that could be tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to change that name too. I think that it would be, I'd be on board with all of those teams changing their names. Me too. too. And, and, you know, the Atlanta Braves too. And you don't think about these things um, maybe even a year ago, but this is what happens when, and it's not just, and I know listeners are probably thinking, oh, it's liberals, it's cancel culture gone too far. It's not. Words have meanings and words change their meaning based on years and decades of, of, of time and being on this planet and they changed the connotation and we're witnessing now an extremely powerful um, society that is looking at past mistakes saying, you know, we took that systemic racism that we didn't even know existed and now we're trying to make it right, which is exactly what Lady A is trying to do right now. Absolutely. And I, I got to say that I, I, I like that people are being a lot more open to looking at their past and even their present and saying, OK, what do we need to change here? This is the time to do it. Everyone is being more open and having these conversations that are really tough um, and they, they need to be they need to happen. I've had, uh, you know, conversations with uh, Professor Kathy Hogarth uh, from the University of Waterloo talking about being able to sit in our discomfort and move through yeah. it and learn from it. Right. And I feel like this is this would have been a, a massive undertaking to go through and change all their branding and, and come forward and say, listen, we have erred in the past. We're going to fix that and not make the same mistakes going forward. Uh, publicists like me who rarely deal with crisis management because I happen to have really good artists that manage not <laughs> to land themselves in hot water will tell you that the first thing that you do is you apologize. You acknowledge your mistakes. You figure out what you're going to do right, and you move on as quickly as possible. Not that you are afraid to take the heat, but you want to change it right away. Um, What's astounding is that 
um, it's it's just happening at, at a moment where I don't even think I didn't see a single word about Lady Antebellum and the heat or pressure that they felt to change the name. They just went ahead and did it, and they got in front of the story rather than wait for the the gallery on Twitter to start making them into an example and a trending topic and then forcing them to change their name. And then of course, all those same people will say, well, you're only doing it now because you want the public relations or you still want the sales. They got in front of the story. They did it at a moment that was perfect. Although it seems like they've done it or that they thought about this for a couple of weeks before, because if you go on Spotify, you won't find Lady Antebellum. You'll only find Lady A from the band, which means that it takes some time to make these changes on Spotify, maybe a week or two. So they must have figured out that they needed to do this right away and just announce it uh, yesterday. But it's still astounding, nonetheless, that they got in front of the story. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it just shows the power of this movement, like you've been saying, Eric. And uh, I, I feel like I feel like there have been a lot of discussions about problematic behavior uh, across many, many areas of our lives, whether it be the music industry, uh, sports, we we're talking about those names of the teams. Um, and there have been discussions, but no real concrete actions taken. And I feel like now people are putting their foot down on the gas and saying, listen, we've talked about this for a long time. Let's actually start taking some action here. This is a really good reminder to people that are still looking at the news and listening to the news like your station, wondering why there's still riots and why there's still marches going on, um, not just here in Canada or in America, but around the world. And it's because it's the power of those marches that are keeping this in front of of everybody um, and, and making them realize that it's about each other's lives. If it was really solely about George Floyd, the minute that those four police officers were arrested and charged, it would have been over. But it's not. It goes deeper. This is a time that has long been overdue, I think, for America especially. Um, and I don't think that Canada is is any further away from this story than what people realize. We're, we all know, you know, um, about what kind of land that we're all working and sitting on and acknowledging um, with the Indigenous culture. Um, their their moment is now too. And this might be, you know, this is going to be a year that is going to be looked at in history books, not just for Lady A, but I think just in culture and politics and, and business and every aspect is going to be um, is going to be touched on over the next couple of months. It's fascinating to see something like this because for the most part, you and I talk about good news in music and we talk about fun stuff. But when this stuff starts spilling over into pop culture uh, and what people are going to be doing, it really shows that we're all human beings. Lady A has garnered my utmost respect because of what they did. Um, uh, and, and I think that people have to realize that there are real people behind these brands and these companies. It's funny. People will always say, like, you know, corporations aren't companies. Um, they're not. But the people that work in them are and they have real feelings. And you better believe that when this coronavirus is over, and we're all going back to work again. There's going to be some real hard look at, in the mirror at some of the things that people have done in the past to make those changes. Absolutely. It's true. And as you said, Eric, these are our long overdue discussions and actions that are being taken. And I'm glad that uh, you and I can have these conversations about what's going on uh, as the world reacts and, and moves forward here. This is, as always, a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you so much for your time and your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jess. We'll have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. You too, eh? Take care.
That's Eric Alper. He's a music publicist and analyst talking about the decision by uh, country band Lady A to now be going by Lady A permanently. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we will be talking with someone from King's University College. They have a new program. It's called King's Cares, and we are going to learn all about how we can help people in our community through it. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We have talked about a number of initiatives that are happening here in London to help support people in our community during these absolutely crazy times. (laughs) I know it gets said a lot that things are crazy. Oh, it's topsy-turvy. Yes, I say that a lot. But it is true. These are unprecedented. Another buzzword. But it is fantastic that so much work is going on to help others. And we are going to be talking about one of those initiatives right now. It's a new program from King's University College at Western, and it's called King's Cares. Yeah. And joining me on the line right now to explain what it's all about is Courtney Santaguida. She's vice president of student events with King's University College's Student Council, and she is the organizer of King's Cares. Courtney, thank you for your time today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to chat with you. I saw the tweet from King's earlier on today, and I thought, well, we should definitely be talking about this because I love, uh, you know, talking about initiatives where people are, are are helping out others in the community, and this sounds like it certainly is. Tell me more about what's going on. Yeah, so I'll just note that this is an initiative um, not only by myself, but by a whole team. Um, so I really do have to acknowledge all the work that many students have put into this. So Project King Cares is an initiative started by the King's University College Student Council in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the goal of this project was to help serve the London community by providing hygienic products and non-perishable food items to those directly or indirectly affected by COVID-19. So the local organizations who are accepting our donations include Atlosa Family Healing Services, Regional HIV slash AIDS Connection, and Sisters of St. Joseph, London. Fantastic. So you're helping uh, a number of groups there, and uh, they'll be able to, you know, distribute the items that are being collected to individuals that they work with. I mean, this is this is a great idea to be able to do this, because we know that, you know, donations uh, went out to a lot of different groups earlier on in the pandemic, but we know that you need to keep up these types of efforts so that people can still uh, get items that they need and, and be supported. So this is great that this is going on right now. Yeah, thank you so much. We're super excited. We um, started the initiative today and we've had quite a few people, students, but also local London community members just driving by and supporting the initiative. So it's been going really well. That's fantastic. And now we'll mention that uh, not only today is it running, but also over the weekend. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what people need to know if they would like to drop something off, where you're where you're doing the actual collection and, and what the hours are. Yeah, of course. So we will be accepting donations all weekend, Saturday and Sunday, from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. at the King's University College. Um, The address is 266 Epworth Avenue, and we are located in the P2 parking lot. And just to note that physical distancing will be required, and we are making sure that we are following all those lovely procedures put in place. 
Fantastic. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I think going to become the uh, everyday routine for everybody, making sure physically distanced and, you know, masks if you can't do that. Uh, so people hopefully will be well versed in, in how to do that and be following all the important instructions from you guys on site. Yeah, hopefully. And people are welcome to bring by non-perishable food items, hygienic products, and that also includes feminine hygienic products as well. Fantastic. Yes, uh, we've heard from, you know, a number of groups in the city that collect items for people that that usually is, uh, you know, in high demand. Unfortunately, those products are expensive and uh, it's, yes. <laughs> it's tough to come by sometimes. Yeah, and it's definitely appreciative on uh, the organization side of things and the charities that we're donating to. So, uh, yeah, any donations are super, super welcome and so appreciative. Wonderful. Well, Courtney, this has been a, a great chat with you. Thank you so much for sharing uh, information about what's going on with King's Cares. I think it's a great initiative, and uh, I'm sure it will continue to be very successful. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. You take care. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. That's Courtney Santaguida. Vice President of Student Events with King's University College Students Council and also one of the organizers of King's Cares. And uh, again, just to give you some some information here, they are accepting donations uh, of non-perishable uh, items as well as unused hygiene products and uh, feminine hygiene products as well. Very important to note. And you can drop them off tomorrow and on Sunday from 11 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. And again, that's happening at King's Campus, which is two. 66 Epworth Avenue here in London in the P2 parking lot. And uh, please, if you are going to drop off some items, uh, make sure that you are abiding by physical distancing protocol and uh, yeah, all that good stuff. Listen to the staff on site. They've they've tweeted out some pictures of their setup here and it looks really good. So I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, they'll have lots of people dropping off items tomorrow and Sunday. They were collecting items today as well, Courtney was saying, and it was a good response. So fingers crossed that continues on and they're donating to some really important agencies here in the city that help a lot of people out. So if you're able to, I hope you can uh, drop off some donations for them. We need to take a break for our five o'clock news package with Andrew Graham. When we come back, we are going to be talking to Dr. Heidi Nelson of the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. She has been working on a new report that recommends all women and girls be screened for anxiety. Very interesting. She's going to share some uh, really almost startling facts, uh, quite honestly, and some data with us. That's coming up after your five o'clock news on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. We have talked a lot about different mental health stories and concerns in the last number of months, uh, mostly related to COVID-19 concerns, whether they be uh, in adults or in children. Uh, but this next topic uh, is not necessarily directed or related to COVID-19, but I still found it very interesting and I wanted to chat more about it. I initially saw this in an article from uh, NPR uh, earlier on this morning and I thought this is quite something. And the story is about some new recommendations from the Women's Preventive Services Initiative, uh, which I, I do believe is, is based out of the U.S., uh, but it's talking about how 
these guidelines suggest that all women and girls should be screened for anxiety disorders. And uh, from beginning the age of 13 onwards, we should be we should be screened. And I thought that was really interesting and I wanted to learn more about it. So I reached out uh, to one of the individuals who was, uh, you know, instrumental in putting together this research uh, evidence review, I should say, and that helped to develop the guidelines put out by the Women's Preventive Services Initiative. And that's Dr. Heidi Nelson who is a professor of medical informatics and clinical epidemiology and medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for coming on the show today to chat with me about this. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I hope you are as well. Yes, yes. After listening to the news, I think we all need to take a deep breath and think about our mental health. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. (laughs) Right. Right. And this is uh, especially for women in in learning, uh, you know, about anxiety. And when I read through this article uh, that, that that I saw that NPR uh, put together and, and chatted with you on, uh, I was a little bit floored at the reason why uh, you, your your team has suggested this, given given looking at the facts of of rates of anxiety in women. Maybe you could uh, start there and talk a little bit about that. All right, it, it is impressive. Unfortunately, it's true. Um, uh, rates of anxiety are high among all men and women, especially now during uh, the COVID pandemic and all the associated issues. Um, but they are twice the rate in women. Forty percent of women have important anxiety disorders at some point in their lives, which is a huge number. Um, the sad part about that is that very few actually are recognized and come to treatment when treatment is actually quite effective. And so often... Women, girls carry this throughout their lives and find that it holds them back in their relationships and their academic and work achievements, and in many ways, um, it, it holds them back. And so allowing that to go on without detection and, and intervention when we actually have tools to do that is not delivering good medical care. We can help a lot of people by uh, asking the key questions, uh, which was part of our, our report, was trying to determine how to do this. I think that's so crucial, the idea of asking, because uh, often uh, women, you know, we, we and, and everybody, but honestly, for for, for women, you know, we, we have a lot on our plates. Uh, and when we have worries about things, it's, it's really easy to just kind of slough it off as, uh, it's just another, it's just another worry, I'm, I'm overthinking or whatever. But unless someone asks mm-hmm. you, like a trusted medical professional kind of raises a, a red flag and says, it, to you and questions it a little further, you might just really try to push it to the side and, and not acknowledge it. That's exactly right. And we get so used to how we're living that we don't appreciate how serious things have become. Um, so these, these instruments are, are very good predictors of who has significant anxiety. We all have some symptoms every day, right? We, particularly now, we all have things we worry about. But what characterizes the anxiety disorders is that this is... Uh, Frequent most of the time, it's severe enough to limit activities or how people behave. It has a number of features that are quite disabling. And so we need to sort out who's actually just having your usual response to things that goes away, you're actually managing well, and who's actually developed uh, a serious set of symptoms that needs attention. Um, and so that's what these tools do. They're very simple, uh, usually a series of two, four, seven, 12 questions, depending on which tool you use. 
Some are geared for adolescents. Others were developed for pregnant and postpartum women. But they all generally work pretty well at sorting out uh, simple symptoms, no symptoms to people who have important symptoms. So that's the first step. I think that's great. And and I love that uh, the guidelines and, and recommendations say to start this at a young age, start around 13, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's also part of the the real push to destigmatize talking about mental health. Uh, you know, the more we talk about it and the earlier on we start to address these issues, the better off we'll be. Absolutely. We already have recommendations to screen for depression, and we do it in a similar way. There are some wonderful tools with a very short list of questions about depression. So what the Women's Preventive Services Initiative has recommended is that we also add these questions. So in one encounter, and in fact, sometimes with one form, you can ask the questions that might flag someone with um, important depressive or anxiety symptoms and get them both done at once and then take it to the next level, which could be further evaluation. It could be mental health uh, intervention using cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes medication, but therapy on its own is very effective. It could indicate that there are other conditions going on. Often anxiety and depression are actually the tip of the iceberg. There may well be some post-traumatic stress disorder. There may be other types of medical disorders, thyroid disease. Sometimes the symptoms are just flags for other things. So we need to take those those seriously and, and look a little little bit further to see what's behind it all and how can we help people. I think that's fantastic because, uh, you know, it, like, you, like you've been saying, uh, there is a lot that can be behind uh, those symptoms of uh, depression and anxiety. And unless you kind of take a deeper look, you won't know what's going on. So uh, it's great that these guidelines are there and, and you've, you've been able to help craft this because it is so important. Exactly. And um, we know Adolescent girls particularly are um, very influenced by society, their social media, uh, they're trying to build their self-esteem, they're trying to find their place in the world. The levels of anxiety are very high and um, underlying that may be eating disorders and other types of behaviors that are are quite destructive. So um, starting early, as you said um, uh, previously, is really important. Just get people used to hearing the questions, answering with a lot of these more sensitive issues, it takes a few times to ask it. You don't just ask once. It's good to ask every time or at least once a year on a regular basis um, because things do change. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that uh, you've been able to, uh, you know, be a part of this discussion and do all of this fantastic work because I, I, I would imagine that this is going to help, you know, countless people, uh, you know, get a better understanding of what's going on within them and uh, to get some help to to ease that, uh, you know, pain that's there. Because as you said, we, we have treatments, we have ways to, uh, you know, make these situations better. But if we don't know that they're going on, we can't make use of them. Exactly, exactly. I really appreciate your interest in this, Jess. I think by um, having this discussion on your radio program, we reach more people than the the things that we publish in the medical journals. So this is a way to really connect to uh, women out there. And and then, too, you know, this recommendation was specifically for women. That's the scope of the Women's Preventive Services Initiative, but we don't want to ignore symptoms uh, and anxiety disorders in men or other people who are not going to be part of this recommendation. Hopefully there'll be another recommendation that's more encompassing um, because they have a pretty high rate too. And I don't know if we have good data about what's happening, like even right now, these rates are probably sky high in general. So 
uh, we want to take care of everybody. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you again so much for your time today, Dr. Nelson, and uh, for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it, and um, I'm very grateful that I had a chance to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Dr. Heidi Nelson. She's Professor of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology and Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine in Portland, Oregon, looking at uh, new recommendations that have come out from the Women's Preventive Science Initiative. And uh, they're saying that all women and girls starting at the age of 13 should be screened for anxiety. And uh, I'm still floored that the rates of uh, anxiety, it occurs in women at nearly twice the rate of men. And pregnant and postpartum women are at an especially high risk as well. So quite interesting data that's been, uh, you know, collected and analyzed by Dr. Nelson and her colleagues who have worked on this project. And again, very grateful to have had the chance to speak with her about this. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. We will be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I am your host, Jess Brady. I hope you're having a good afternoon. You're nearly done your afternoon. It's almost, almost your Friday evening. And that means you're into your weekend, more than likely. I thought I would just take a couple of minutes to go over some of our daily totals. And locally, and of course all of this information is on our website, 980cfpl.ca, So locally, four people tested positive for the novel coronavirus in our area since yesterday. This, of course, is uh, this information courtesy of the Middlesex London Health Unit. So four new positive cases since yesterday. One person has recovered. Total number of cases in the region, uh, 572, of which 429 have recovered. And there have been 57 deaths. The health unit figure shows that the latest death was a woman in her 90s at a local retirement home. And of course, our condolences go out to the friends and family of that individual. The four new cases that were reported since yesterday are all in London. They are not linked to local seniors' facilities. And that continues a trend over the past two weeks that's seen new cases largely reported outside of long-term care and retirement homes. Of the 33 cases that have been—sorry, it's Friday. I'm starting to to lose my ability to speak here. It's almost weekend time. (laughs) Of the 33 cases that have been reported in the region since last Monday, 32 have been community-sourced. Again, this is from the health unit. So— That just shows you that even though we're moving into phase two, and even though we're kind of getting into these social circle things, we still do have to be cautious. No one is saying you don't have to worry anymore. You still need to be mindful of wearing your non-medical mask if you can't ensure physical distancing. Uh, Make sure you're washing your hands frequently. Use alcohol-based hand sanitizer if you can't wash your hands with soap and water. Stay home if you don't feel well. All that good stuff. That doesn't change. And it just kind of shows you the importance. Like the virus is still around. As I think Dr. Elias said, you know, it's it's simmering. We have to not let our guard down about that. But 
we are at a point where we can start moving a little bit to open things up. Speaking of which, the province, they reported 182 new cases today since yesterday. That, by the way, is the lowest daily number since late March. It's pretty good. Like to hear that. I honestly, if they had not told me that it was late March, I think it was like March 28th, the exact day that we had total that that low. Uh, if I didn't know that from the news, like I could not remember the last time that we were in the 100s of cases. So that is good news. Sadly, though, there were 11 deaths since yesterday. There were a record number of testing testing tests that were done since yesterday 28,335 that's great because the goal I think was what 20,000 they were saying that was sort of the capacity I guess well they're over capacity good getting lots of those tests done and now Ontario has a total of 31,726 cases and we've had 2,498 deaths here in the province so that's where we stand as of as of today, 182 cases across the province since yesterday, and it was only a 0.6% increase since yesterday. And locally here in London, four new cases and one recovery. So there you go. Those are your local and provincial totals for the day. We need to take a quick break for our 5.30 news. When we come back, we are checking in with Kevin George from St. Aidan's Church. There's another interface service that's coming up this weekend, and we'll find out all about it. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I hope you're having a good afternoon so far. As I said before, you are nearly into your evening. Think about that. Your week is nearly done. Almost time for a weekend. I hope you have some relaxation planned for yourself this weekend over the next couple of days. Take some time. Maybe you'll take advantage of the loosened restrictions. Go to a patio. Maybe be able to visit with some family or close friends who you've not seen in a little while, given everything that's been going on. Either way, I hope you have some time for reflection and relaxation, like I said. And if you're looking for a way of connecting with the community, because there's been a lot that's going on over the last, obviously, several months, but especially in the last couple of weeks, related to some pretty heavy discussions on racism, fighting back against systemic racism. There's been a lot of community engagement. And there's an event coming up online on Sunday involving the one and only Kevin George from St. Aidan's Anglican Church here in London. It is an interfaith prayer service, similar to one that happened a few weeks ago, but this one specifically is called Standing on the Side of Love. And Kevin joins me on the line right now to talk more about what's going on. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Hey, Jess, thanks for having me. And thank God there's only one of me. <laughs> well, you know what? We always love chatting with you, the original, the only. Yeah, the one and the only. Thank <laughs> you, God. So tell me a little bit about uh, this this latest edition of uh, the Interfaith Service, because we've had one before. Uh, we yeah. talked about that at the time, but this one uh, has has a different uh, a, a different focus, I guess, this time. Sure. So we were uh, we were really um, 
humbled by the response to our first interfaith prayer service that we we hosted on YouTube on on the Vickers Crossing podcast uh, YouTube channel, and uh, it was it's been viewed about seven hundred times, and uh, we had a lot of feedback from people across the city encouraging us and suggesting that people were heartened by uh, the uh, unified response uh, that was that one was specifically around COVID. And uh, shortly on the heels of that, of course, uh, with the images of, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and I mean, they're just the latest three of a long litany of people of color who've had to deal with uh, violence uh, at the hands of systemic racism, really. Um, Dr. Munir Al-Qassam uh, reached out to me and said, you know, we need to do something and we need to do it right away. So even though we're just a few weeks mo- uh, moved off of the other one, we felt that it was incumbent upon us to stand with those who are now saying uh, loudly, you know, that Black Lives Matter. Um, and so we gathered together uh, folks across many traditions, Hindu, Sikh, uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Baha'i, uh, uh, Indigenous spirituality. Uh, we had uh, remarks in the mayor's office. And we're also pleased to have Ariel Kayabaga, Ward 13's counselor, who many of us know through the news stories that your outlets have covered and others about what she's faced as a person of color in um, in a high-profile position. So we, we had her give a reflection as well, and we had music offered in this one from Mark Smith, who is the music director at uh, at uh, Riverside United and is an um, uh, African-Canadian himself. So it, it it's, a, it's a beautiful event. It'll be 7.30 Sunday night, and it really does bring us together to talk about the fact that we've got big issues we need to address. Absolutely. There have been so many conversations in the last number of weeks. Um, and I've, I've said this even on this on the program earlier on today, much needed conversations, uh, but they, they are, are difficult ones to have sometimes. And I think that an event like this is really good to remind everyone that we want to move forward in a unified way and, and, and fix uh, the errors of the past so that we don't keep repeating them. Yeah, and that really requires, I mean, I think what we're hoping is that it, as leaders in the community, faith leaders in the community, that we might model what this was needed right now. And what needs modeling is a willingness to accept how we all participate in these systems that are um, imbalanced and, un- and unfair. So I look at it as a, as a white, um, you know, married, cisgendered, straight, male, middle class, and I'm the poster child for white privilege or for privilege in general, probably. Um, and so one of the things that I've been reflecting hard on over these past days, uh, we hosted a forum at St. Aidan's on Tuesday night. Um, and after that, even just realizing that I've benefited because somebody else has not. And we need to be able to say that we need to be able to come to know and understand that, uh, some of us are, we don't start on the same start line. Um, you know, some of us have an advantage and if we don't use that advantage now, um, because, you know, as one, as, um, Councillor Kaya Baga said on our event, uh, the other night, you know, the white voices matter. <laughs> and we need, we need, uh, we need those of us who have that privilege now, or those of us who are faith leaders across the board, uh, you know, regardless of race, those that you, that I mentioned earlier, to use the positions we have to amplify this conversation, to let people know, uh, that this is, uh, um, a legitimate cause. Uh, and that we're not going to get any better if we don't all take part in acknowledging our own uh, complicity. Uh, because even if we haven't intended it, 
uh, that's really not the issue, is it? It's it's the result, and it's what people feel at the end of it. And uh, it's unpleasant, and it's unsavory, because it means admitting some things that we, we're really not too comfortable with. And we have to acknowledge what we've all been raised in and the things we've heard around dinner tables and and even just the implicit biases in our systems. We're sort of marinated in it in a way, and if we if, if we don't do the work, it'll just continue. It's very true. And this is why we need to keep having these conversations, especially as, uh, you know, we move through and onwards from uh, the demonstrations that were at their height a little while ago, but they're still happening. Uh, You know, different demonstrations are happening right across the U.S. and there are still conversations happening in Canada. But we these events that the one like this, this interfaith service that you've planned here with uh, your other uh, faith partners across across the community, uh, this is the type of discussion that will help keep changing the uh, tone of, of what we do and help keep pushing for change in the systems uh, that we are we are working within right now? Well, we hope so. I mean, I think that when you talk about Black, Indigenous, and persons of colour uh, and what they've experienced in in, uh, in the Canadian context, I mean, it's easy for us to look. They're 18 days into big demonstrations in the United States, and it becomes easy for us as Canadians to sort of sit on some sort of high moral horse and look at it and say, oh, well, look at the mess that it is. And it is truly a mess. Um, but that being said, it, it is to turn our head away from some unsavory things that we need to see here. And we need to build now on the momentum of the city has never seen 10,000 people come together the way they did a, a, about a week ago here. So, you know, we, we now need to build on that and we need to continue to share stories uh, because our stories are so critically important. I mean, uh, just today seeing the release of that dash cam video um, uh, from Fort McMurray mm-hmm. and what that chief went through. And, you know, one of the conversations being amplified, the conversations being amplified is how can we not look at that and realize that there's an implicit bias at work, uh, that we've got our own um uh, we've got our own closets we need to clean out, and we need to come to grips with the fact that there's a lot of work to do. And those voices that are crying out for justice, from a Christian perspective, we want to hold on to the message that says we respect the dignity of every human being. It's a promise we make in baptism. We say we'll seek and serve Christ in all persons, not just the people that look like us, that speak like us. Uh, like, you know, whoever we are is to look for Jesus in everyone. And so for us, we, we wanted to have an event that said we're standing on the side of love uh, because there's too much hate. And so for us, it's, it's uh, um, you know, and you'll hear each of the faith leaders in their own respect talk uh, quite passionately about the need for love and justice and peace and for us to um, be contrite and to repent of those ways that we've participated uh, in, in systems that have perpetrated violence against black, indigenous, and persons of color because that's what it's going to take for us to lunge forward and to be strong allies and to help change uh, the uh, injustice that there is in the systems right now. Absolutely. Well, this has been uh, a great chance to kind of get a preview of what's coming up on Sunday evening again, 7.30 on the Vickers Crossing YouTube channel, the Standing on the Side of Love Interfaith Service. And uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today in in describing what's going to happen and the importance of it. And uh, I do appreciate the time that you've spent with us here. Hey, always glad to be on and always glad to hear what you're doing. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Oh, thank you so much. And you as well. Thank you for all of your hard work in the community, Kevin. We appreciate it. All right. Blessings all. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye for now.
That's Kevin George of St. Aidan's Anglican Church here in London. They have another interfaith service that's coming up, like I said, on Sunday evening at 7.30. You can find it through the Vickers Crossing YouTube channel. And uh, it is Standing on the Side of Love. London's interfaith leaders call on Londoners at a time of prayer and solidarity. We need to take a break for our traffic and weather update. When we come back, we'll be chatting with producer Matt McNaughton for Bright Spots. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL on this sunny Friday afternoon at the start of phase two of the reopening. Yeah. In the age of Rona. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dark age. It is a dark age. But today we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, as it it would seem, Uh, especially with the sunshine outside. That definitely makes things a lot nicer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot nicer, a lot more bearable. Mm -hmm, For sure. And this is actually uh, kind of the time that most people start wanting to take some time off from work. Mm -hmm. And usually when we have little ones in school... They're getting ready for their summer vacations. Yep. And we have a number of people here who are going on vacation soon, taking some well-deserved time off. Absolutely. Getting a couple days of R&R even. Yeah. Like yourself, Matt. True. Yeah. I'm taking a long weekend that yeah. I'm uh, very much looking forward to. Well, it's very well-deserved. You work hard every day. Thank you. So do you. Take time off. (laughs) Do it, please. I I have to book some. Yeah, I I don't know when I'm going to. (laughs) (laughs) That's the challenge, is is finding a a good time to take the vacation. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get there. That will happen. But um, I wanted Mm. to ask you, what has been, like, your favorite vacation ever or your favorite kind of vacation, since we're talking about vacations? Yeah, this is a really, really hard question for me to uh, to <laughs> answer. Been everywhere. I've been a lot of places. So uh, for those listening, uh, I might have mentioned it before, but I grew up in a military family. My father was in the Air Force, and um, I was actually hello, I spent. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> he is listening. Um, I, I did spend my childhood overseas. I uh, spent from two thousand and one to two thousand and. I think 12 in uh, in Europe. So a good chunk of my life there. And subsequently, I've been all over the place. But if I had to pick, I'd say there were three kinds of vacations that I, I like the most all that right. I could boil it down to because I can't pick a one. Right. The first would be my Canada vacations. Oh. Because these would be times where we'd come back to see family. And those were really special to me because I grew up so distant from my family. My dad's family lives here in London and my mom's family lives out in Calgary. Okay. So the times I came to London uh, were amazing. And the times I went to Calgary, those were really special for family reasons. Uh, then were the relaxing vacations right. where you go one place and you do nothing. Love those. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> top of mind, uh, Turkey. We you know went to a resort in Turkey, just relaxed, did nothing. Cool. Um, the first time I went to Egypt, we uh, we just we didn't do much. We hung out at the resort, beautiful sun, weather. It, it was lovely. So I like those kinds of uh, vacations, and those would probably be my top two for the relaxing ones. Okay. And then for kind of the typical sightseeing vacations, a couple places really come to mind. But I think the one at number one on my list for sightseeing and experiencing a city was probably Prague. Cool. In All the right. Czech Republic. Um, 
it's a really cool city and the people of the Czech Republic are the nicest people in the world. It's a city that's got all kinds of incredible art and history because you, you have the events that happened uh, with the USSR. And there's a lot of things in that city influenced by that. You've got things way older, like their uh, their astronomical clock in, in downtown Prague, which we, we live by. So it's um, if I if I had to pick one place for sightseeing, I'd probably say Prague. That place was incredible. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. How about you? You got a favorite place? Well, I have done some traveling, but like not, not a ton. I will say sure. I was very lucky as as a as a youngster to have traveled pretty much coast to coast with my parents. One cool. summer we went west, and the next summer we went east. Um, so I was really lucky that I got to do that kind of a trip. I was really young, but I still do remember like quite a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing quite like the Canadian Rockies. They are just They're beautiful. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, they're gorgeous. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, actually, yes, I have been in both oceans, uh, Atlantic awesome. and Pacific. Yep. <laughs> I seem to remember a, a very nice afternoon on the beach in PEI, just kind of like rolling in the waves. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Yeah. With uh, some other family members that were out there with us uh, on that trip. And um, yeah, like I've, I've been south down into the Caribbean area for trips mm-hmm. there, uh, which are also nice for relaxing. Um, but course. I But I think my favorite type of vacation uh, is probably like going to a cottage. And just having that downtime where you don't have any schedules, you do exactly what you want. You, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, prep that goes into bringing all your stuff up there, yeah. your food and uh, your beverages, whatever they may be of choice. But they are, those are like such nice vacations where you're on the water, you're on the lake or whatever it is, whatever body of water. And if you're really lucky, you get to go into a boat, a speedboat. And yeah. that's, that's just joy. I was thinking about that actually, uh, I think yesterday when I was on my morning walk. And I was like, remember how fun that is getting in a boat? <laughs> so much fun. And uh, I'm not even like a big speed person. Like I don't, I wouldn't want to go like full tilt or yeah, whatever. Sure. I wouldn't want to yeah. be in charge of it. But I like to be <laughs> in the boat relaxing. Wind feeling, blowing through your hair. Yeah, feeling like yeah. I'm in a music video. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I don't think I've had that experience. I don't think I've had a cottage experience. What? Yeah, it's like I, I've I've been I've been all over Europe and I've been to you know Egypt. I've been to North Africa and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I've uh, the only real time I've been to America that I remember was when I was like seventeen, going to Arizona, which was incredible. Saw the Grand Canyon. Cool. But the only provinces that I've been to that I remember really are Winnipeg or Manitoba, I should say, because I lived there for a little. Ontario and Calgary. I know I've been through Saskatchewan, but I was just way too young and we never really had a, a cottage to go to. So that's something I've never experienced. I really want to. You, you should, because I was really lucky when I was little and we lived in Quebec. My family had a cottage up in the Laurentians and it was just fantastic. You know, it's great to be able to have that little getaway space for you. We were on a really small lake, so there weren't any uh, like motor motor powered uh, boats or anything like that. It was yeah. just... Uh, All paddles yeah, and like exactly. canoes, stuff like Paddle that. Paddle boat. Yeah. Yes, the best. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's lots of fun. And then I've been to friends' cottages since uh, as I've gotten older. And that's a lot of fun. Just being able to have that space. It's a real privilege uh, to have a little uh, corner of, of nature on your own and, and just enjoy it that way. But uh, yeah, I'm glad we had that that little chat about uh, of vacations and, and what the best types are that we've experienced 
Now, uh, we have but mere moments left in the show, but we could not end the show this week without chatting with Marilyn very quickly. Hi, Marilyn. Hey, Marilyn. Oh, hi there. Hi, Matt and Jeff. Hi. How it's are you? beautiful ya? day. Oh, not too bad. Thank you. Good. Do you want a joke? Yes, as we've, we've got time for just the one, and I know it'll be great. Okay, honey. Um, now there's two, but I'm trying to go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> but anyways, dear, I might as well do this one about service. A man who had been married for 10 years was consulting a marriage counselor. When I was first married, I was very happy. I'd come home from a hard day at the shop, and my little dog would race around barking, and my wife would bring my slippers. Now everything is changing. When I come home, my dog uh, brings my slippers and my wife barks at me. I don't know what you're complaining about, said the counselor. You're still getting the same service. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good one, Marilyn. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Well, you have a great day, dear. You too, and and we'll chat with you next week, okay? Okay. Love your show, and uh, I think the little, uh, little, she's not little anymore, (laughs) the um, uh, Stubbs girl, Kylie. Yes, yes. She did a remarkable job. She She did. did. She's lovely. And so did Kelly, I think her name was Kelly Jameson, who talked about the her experience with that hurricane that went not hurricane uh, the tornado, tornado yeah Kelly Jansen through um, uh, Glen was it Glencoe yes it was yeah. I believe so Glencoe yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah she did a wonderful job too yes yeah. yeah we were very lucky this week that we had fantastic guests on uh, uh, talking about a number of things so yeah definitely oh gosh yes it's very very interesting I had a friend here this afternoon. And she thought it was very interesting because I had your show on. Oh, okay. So anyways, well, keep up the good work, dear. Thank you so much, Marilyn. You have a wonderful evening and weekend, and uh, we look forward to chatting with you next week, okay? Okay, goodbye, bye-bye, Jesse, and goodbye, Matt. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye, dear. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The lovely 